Stand-up comedian and now author Jo Caulfield joins us on this week's How To Be 60. She was prompted to write her book, The Funny Thing About Death, by the loss of her sister Annie, age 57. And definitely being the age where she didn't get beyond was a big thing. But in a positive way, in that I do think of it like, if something's annoying, I go, you can be dead. You know, you, you do, you, this is the bonus time. So you're lucky. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Greetings, all. The Golden Girls are back. Adams and Mackenzie for another look at life beyond the big 6 um, the Golden Girls, actually, we should be so lucky. I bloody love the Golden Girls. You no, know, I think I came in at the end of the Golden Girls. I'm probably too young. Came in at the end of the... No, hang on. <laughs> Just wanted to do that for effect. And do you know that way that... Thank you, you probably for had being to re- afraid. Yep. You had to record it on... on- your VHS or whatever it was, if you wanted to see it. Why didn't you just watch it? No, well, this is what I'm saying. I don't know. What what year would it be? What year? Oh, don't ask me that. No, no, that's why I'm thinking. I just don't. I mean, I do remember seeing a few episodes, but I hadn't completely bought into, into them. It. And all my VHSs were full of Coronation Street. So I don't know. I just didn't oh seem to. Oh, my God, there's a confession. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. I do remember them. I had forgotten that, actually, because if you're, all your VHSs were full of something else, you were buggered. <laughs> and you were so, what can we wipe? <laughs> oh, I know. It was really did. It was, yes. <laughs> I yeah. Oh, I love the Golden Girls. Ross, my pal Ross and I were at university, and we used to sit on a Friday night, pair of saddles that we were. Everyone else was out clubbing at Cinderella. Rockefellers, um, <laughs> and we used to go to Mr. Boney's ice cream shop, uh-huh. Toll Cross in Edinburgh. Yes, get ourselves the ice cream down and watch the Golden Girls oh, Friday lovely. night, Channel Four. Oh my God! Half an hour, an hour, half an hour, half Fantastic. an hour. Wonderful. Um, Dorothy, Rose, Blanche, and Sophia. I'm, I'm trying to think. I would definitely be Dorothy. Why? Because she was the kind of sharp-witted, sassy one. <laughs> right. Um, you name that yourself, right? I Rose think I think, think you, you would were... be Rose. Which is she was. Like, <laughs> this is just for my private oh my enjoyment. God, I love you're laughing at your own joke, but nobody else knows the joke yet. Rose Betty White from St. Olaf. You know, she was the kind of ditzy, sort of, you know, um, out of towner. Right. <laughs> ditzy. Oh, I can take ditzy. All right. You know, she was, you know, just a bit. What's, I'm trying to be polite. I shouldn't be polite. You could be Blanche. She had big tits. You want to be Blanche? She was a bit of a slapper. <laughs> right, you've certainly picked the right one, haven't you? <laughs> Maybe I could be that same one. I'm quickly moving into being Sophia. That was Dorothy's mum, who just swore and farted the whole time, and that's where I'm moving to. Right, yes, <laughs> yes. It was every every step. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, how are you getting on with the gift I gave you a fortnight ago? Oh, I love it. It's sitting there. I love the box it's in. I've not taken it out yet. I just like looking at it. It's gorgeous. What were you looking at it for? You're supposed to slap it on. It's a nice ornament, though, sitting there. Oh, God, I'm not going to open it. Vulva oil. Vulva oil. I it, sounds like a, it? <laughs> you sound like a Swedish advert for Volvo. <laughs> Volvo oil. You know, you can try and do it a wee bit. Oh, no, I'm not going to open it, Kay. Hang on. Why did you give it to me in the first place? I mean, to ask you that. Because, uh, you know, as we get older, because... we dry out. Do you our, not use our, it or have you used it? Dry out. I think anyone could see that my skin is a bit more hydrated than yours. We're not you know, talking about your 
face. No, but, but the skin on your face is representative of the skin everywhere. So if you look at your face and you look at my face, one would imagine that my vulva is a bit more hydrated than yours. And you... You've got a load of slap on your face. <laughs> no, I haven't. And you, you have. No, I haven't. Wow. I have not. It's like I'm sitting next to you. I can see it. For God's sake, you're not always up at six o'clock this morning. I do not have a lot of slap on. You still get your false eyelashes Yeah, on. no, but that's different. You don't put vulva oil on your eyelashes, do you? <laughs> you don't put so, it on at all, I don't think. I think you should try it. Try it. Do you have a bottle yourself? No, because I don't need it. You need it. You don't need it. No. So you don't need it because... Because I'm better hydrated than you. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. right. So you've no use for it at all? No, none whatsoever. So please, okay. it was a gift. I gave it to you. <laughs> Vulva the oil. Packaging is gorgeous. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> I do love an orange box. Uh, have you finally eaten your way through your garden? Oh, God, the courgettes continue. Uh, I actually gave a massive courgette to Tricia, my mate, about two days ago. She came back saying, God, what's your favourite courgette recipe? So I sent her two. Uh, yeah, spuds are just about eaten. The handy thing is, going away on holiday today, so I did do a lot of batch cooking with three different courgette meals in it, so I'm going to have to stagger in between. I haven't told Stephen yet. Well, you're taking the meals on holiday? Yeah, I froze them. Made them, froze them, and then we've got this brilliant fridge that I bought, which is more like a freezer, and that sits in the camper van, and that'll keep them frozen for about four days. So wait a minute, you're going away in the camper van? Yeah. With Stephen? Yeah. With pre-prepared meals that you've made from courgettes in your garden? Yeah. Yeah. you got a problem with that? No, 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 it sounds really nice. It, it sounds really, really nice. Where are you going? Oh, well... Um, Tonight and tomorrow night we're in Chester mm-hmm. and they've never been there before. And then we're going down to Wales to St. David's. We've got three nights there and then three nights in Anglesey. And Lovely. then a night at the lakes and the way back up. So we're doing a bit of the waste. Rock and roll. The way- <laughs> You're <laughs> such a... <laughs> so I was actually going to go really bad there, but... Oh, go on, go on. I'd love to see it. Come on, just see it. Just say it out. Do you know what I didn't mean to? I thought the C word was courgette. You push me to my limits. You oh, really no. do. I know. You don't deserve me sitting here beside you. Being no, I don't. I absolutely bloody don't. Anyway, we've got to stop talking about courgettes because our guest today is Joe Caulfield, um, stand-up and author, who actually we interviewed um, at our fringe shows, but unfortunately... We had a bit of a tech fail, which I'm taking responsibility for. Um, so You forget to press the button when you're taking responsibility for it. No, I just take responsibility for everything, unlike you. you. So I'm yeah, prepared to take responsibility. Yeah, yeah. aren't I good? Well, I'm glad yeah. we have finally got to the end of your food mountain, that's for sure. Well, actually, I'm now on, and I think I'm slightly obsessed, I'm now on to brambles. So... I'm actually cut to ribbons as well. In fact, my my fingers are sort of stained purple. So many brambles around just now. It's so fantastic. My freezer is full of them. And uh, I've done quite a few of the parks. And I had to nip up and get fuel for the van yesterday. And I went into the local cemetery. And they have got the best brambles. You're watching in the cemetery. My friend Deirdre introduced me to it. And oh my God, it's fantastic. That, I, I don't know, illegal. it must be the nutrients that in the ground, it, but whatever oh it is, God. they are amazing. That That's desecration, you can't go in, I mean, that's like grave robbing. No, no, it's not, it's not. <laughs> Brambles only grow where it's slightly wild, and it's a lovely sort of old, I don't think people are, well, they you might are still be getting buried sick. there. 
no, you're no, no, absolutely no. What's the point of letting all that lovely food go to waste? It certainly would go back into the ground again, but no, I'm getting the benefit, and lots of others will be as well. Do you, do you like a forage, key? I'm looking at your eyes. I think you are slightly going mad. I, I think I'm like watching it in front of my my very eyes. Have you, you ever much... foraged? No, I've never foraged. I've no intentions of foraging. Now, listen, we've I'm got to move on. Much. And can you please be nice to Joe because you were a bit rude to Richard Madeley last week. Um, I don't remember that. You were. You were. You said to my God, you can go on a bit. Um, oh, he can talk. <laughs> I know, but you didn't need to point it out. And. We've got Dr. Hilary Jones next week. We've already done that interview and you've had yeah. a right old zinger to him as well. So I just, didn't. You did. He can. You he, did. He can. You did. And people will hear it. Um, so just please, please be be polite, all right? Please, please keep your mouth shut, Karen. And don't use that C word again. We don't <gasps> want to hear any more about courgettes, okay? Just before I get on to the email of the week, um, Anne has been in touch to say that she was at the French Arch. She saw Denise uh, Minor and Ian Rankin. All right. And she nice. really enjoyed it. She said it was like nice. living... Uh, being in the living room with friends and says thank you for making us over 60s feel relevant. Um, I hope Jo's not getting nervous because she's not 50 yet, actually. I think she's uh, 60 yet. She's 58. Um, it says, Karen is right, okay, once you get over the first six months of retirement, you'll wonder, have you ever had time to hold down a job? That's so true. You'll be so busy, you know, um, making courgette recipes and <laughs> freezing them and getting ready to go to Wales in a camper. You just don't know what you're doing. Honest to God. Yeah. I haven't got, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd hate to go back to work. Right. So here is the email of the week. It's a long email, but I really wanted to read it because um, it's Maria that sent it in. And I genuinely really appreciate the fact that Maria has sent this in. She's very nice about the podcast. She loves the banter and she's gone back and she's listened to all the episodes, which is really nice. But here's what she says. She says, how to be 60. Becoming 60 was never a problem for me, but becoming 65 filled me with trepidation for some reason. I reached this milestone on the 1st of May this year, and my children, grandchildren, family and friends made it a special day, but I had an uneasy feeling. On the 20th of July this year, I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Uh, I'm lucky that it has been graded as stage 1B, and it seems to be contained. On Wednesday, the 9th of August, I attended my first oncology appointment to find out my, out my MRI results. They were favourable. Uh, it doesn't seem to have spread, and I've got a treatment uh, plan, which is quite an extensive treatment plan, um, you know, hysterectomy, removing the womb, ovaries, etc. Mm -hmm. That's going to be on Monday, the 4th of September. Uh, now, of course, we are recording this just at the end of August, and it's just when it came in, and I thought, right, okay, Maria's got this coming up on the 4th of September, though by the time this podcast sure. goes out, um, yeah. it will have been done. Um, so Maria's saying that four weeks after, I'll know if treatment is needed, further treatment is needed. Um, as your title song says, it is scaring the shit mm -hmm. out of me, uh, but I'm trying to be stoic and positive. And then she says, and please don't think this, Maria, sorry if this email seems all doom and gloom. That's not the intention. It's just good to get things off my chest and to say that we should trust our gut feelings, whatever they may be. I've got lots of loving support with a lovely cancer nurse, Emma, but I feel so much better for writing this email. Been a difficult couple of months, but at least we have a plan now, upwards and onwards. Only close family and friends know my diagnosis at the moment, but I do feel ready to start telling others and accepting the help and support that I know that I am lucky to have. So, Maria, listen, yeah. we're, we're thinking of you, and um, you know, it is sometimes the case, isn't it? You write things down, and you get it out there, and you get it out yourself, mm -hmm. and you feel a little better. So, um, 
Uh, I hope you don't mind us reading that out, Maria, but I'm sure everyone who is listening uh, will be well, sending you yeah, exactly, their very yeah. best wishes. Mm-hmm. I'm actually thinking, not this is going to help Maria, but I think for the email of the week, we should send them some of your tablet. Do you think? Hi. God, they might not like it. No, they might not. But no, Ali Mack hates it. She makes no... Well, but it's the, it's the thought that counts. Well, God, I'd be very happy to. And a, cu- <laughs> and a courgette and a cucumber, I was going to say. So okay, all right, enough, enough, enough. enough. Sorry, Maria, I'm sorry I suggested that. Okay, we'll speak to Joe after this. Hi, Joe. Well, first of all, listen, apologies for that tech fail at the festival. I mean, if Karen hadn't been so obsessed with giant courgettes, I, I think it would have I think it would have worked. I'm I'm not that bothered because I seem to remember you asking me a question and then Jack Doherty was just fixated with the picture of you in your swimsuit and then immediately talked over me and started talking about your crotch. But you know what? I don't think I'm coming across the best here. So It was yeah. so rude. You're absolutely right. You didn't. You couldn't concentrate for one minute when it wasn't about him. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a bit key because I think he said, you're staring at my crotch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, do you know what? That was funny you should say that because that was a really interesting little bit of the conversation. We just say that Jack Doherty was also on, uh, on with you. And he's a lovely man, isn't he, Jack? Yes. I mean, he's just so laid back and a really lovely guy. But I think at that point in the conversation, we were starting to talk about more emotional things. <laughs> and it was just a classic <laughs> moment because you were kind of engaging with it. And you could see Jack going, Jesus Christ, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, that sort of man of his generation panic of, oh, my God, they're about to talk about real feelings. Soft oh, stare at a vagina. That's more pleasing to me. <laughs> Well, and also he had said, we're talking about poor Jack and he's not here, but he had said that his father and his Mm. grandfather, like going back those generations, had been even more kind of buttoned up at him. Yes, and I think that's the way men were, yeah. It is, that's kind of male sort of work in progress, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that that, it's funny because I did a whole routine this year about that, about my husband's friends and how they never ask each other personal questions. Mm. You know, and I'll come back. He'll come back and I'll ask how their various partners and wives are. No idea, because I don't know. We don't talk about that sort of thing. How do you not talk about it? But they absolutely just don't. And there was one of his friends, and I only found out recently. I said, oh, so what's his past then? My husband goes, oh, well, he's been married three times. I went, has he? And as far as I know, he's been single for a long time. And I said, well, what's the story there? And again, my husband had no further information. So someone will just say in a pub, I've been married three times, and they won't ask any follow-up questions. Bonkers. Yeah. So for men, for male stand-ups, you could say that perhaps it's quite unusual for them to be, you know, observing um, people's behaviour and and looking at emotions. But for female stand-ups, and I came to see your show at the Fringe, which, you know, was packed out, and, you know, it, it was a great show. The unusual thing from a female is seeing a woman, as you did, stride onto a stage, grab a microphone and control a room. Yeah, yes. uh, You know, I'm just sitting there watching and it still was conscious. You don't see that many women doing that. To be honest, your life is too hard for me. And I mean, I'm quite hardcore. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing it? Do you see yourself doing it forever? Yeah. I mean, um, if I'm honest, I've probably been doing it for nearly, probably about 28 years now since I first started. And I was, because I did, you know, I had no 
I, did, I, I was just drifting. Like I left school at 17. I was in a band. I sold secondhand clothes. I was drifting around knowing I, all I knew was I didn't want to do anything conventional, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't have any skills or talent for anything. So I always feel I was very lucky to find stand-up. I thought, oh, that is the thing. I remember seeing Joan Rivers on television and she um, was doing that thing where she would just pick on people in the audience and say, show me your wedding ring. Oh, that's a shitty ring. And, and I was just like, oh, my God, imagine doing that for a living, just being rude to people. Uh, and then I go, well, now look what I do. So, and I don't, and you don't retire. I don't think anyone who's, I don't want to say artistic, but well, you know, you know, uh, musicians don't retire. Actors don't retire. I don't think you retire unless you don't like doing it anymore. And I like doing it. And also I think you've always got something to say because your life is changing, you know, getting older. I mean, I see my audience they're mostly my age. There are younger people as well, but I think they're my age. They they want to hear what I've got to say. We want to, you know, we relate to the same things about life, and uh, and we're all as can't believe that we are getting older because we're still still all feel so young. So I think you have yeah you have to be able to not go crazy living on your being on your own, you know, in hotels and things, and be self contained in that way. And it, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Sometimes you could, you know, cause I balance it with uh, being at home or go, well, now I need to do some club gigs. So I'm around other comics. It's more sociable. So I sort of balance it that way. But like the traveling, the hotels, et cetera, mm. do you never get to say, do you think, okay. I love a hotel. Oh, you love it. <laughs> yeah. I like a bit, go into my room, the hotel. To me, it's like, oh good, I can do whatever I like. So I can have a glass of wine, I can watch the program I want to watch, or I've got some peace and quiet so I could do a bit of writing. So I don't, you know, I don't see what's not what's not to like. I mean, obviously, sometimes you get fed up. But I mean, I, I think people who have to do a terrible commute every morning to work for a job they don't even like, you know, I have free time, more free time. I can choose to have more free time than most people. I don't have to take all the work. So I'm trying to do that more, to Are have you? more free time. Um, little then now I'm thinking but then there's a tour <laughs> but uh but then I try to block out time and go no then you're not doing anything and then just yeah because you I'm definitely conscious I get older there's less time ahead of me so I do want to do m more of those things that you go well I, I just want to enjoy myself or just be at home sometimes because I I love that too so you are conscious of the passage of time it's not that you're kind of stuck oh yeah oh definitely can't help but be you know Mm. Yeah. And also because of my sister dying, I'm very conscious this is bonus time that I'm getting here. You know, yeah. I've lived longer than she got to live. Yeah. Um, well, you, you know, you bring that up and obviously, you know, that's something we wanted to talk about. And I mean, I have uh, trumpeted your book that you have written um, a lot because I enjoyed it so much. You know, the funny thing about death is the title of it. And uh, uh, I'm going to give it to you. Actually. Yeah, I'd like that. To, to Wales, I've got a copy downstairs. What, what's the, the sort of chronology of that as to when you started writing that that book um i started it as just sort of having i had so many thoughts in my head after she died um i remember we went on holiday to florida a beach holiday and to kind of relax because i hadn't really processed she died there seemed to be so much to do and she died in the november and we went in january and i had all these thoughts so i just started writing things down it was thoughts to do with um 
what going back over the sort of timeline of her illness, because I felt very strongly that I had, if I had said something about her being thin, maybe she would have got herself checked earlier. She had a very late diagnosis for lung cancer. Um, but she was also the sort of person she liked being thin and she might have snapped at me and gone, what's wrong with me being thin? So I didn't say anything. And then, and also sort of thinking, thinking about her. And then I thought of how funny she was and there was lots of funny stories and what a big influence she was. So I just started writing it down. And then I put out some of what I'd written out, I put out on Twitter. And then it was hearing back from people and also how angry I was and how about her dying. And, and some of the coverage about cancer seemed very, very always you always had to be positive and people didn't talk about that people were still dying um, and that seemed a bit of a dirty secret so I sort of vented about that and then it was only after sort of getting a lot of feedback that then I remember this man had asked me a guy had emailed me a couple of years ago to say oh I'm a literary agent you ever thought of writing a book and I went no so then I emailed him again and said I think I'm writing a book and we had a meeting and we talked about it and um, and he said, well, it does sound like a book. And some of the book is a bit of a bit of a how to deal with grief and also when someone gets cancer, because um, she wasn't uh, someone who was very public about it, because that was the other thing. It seemed to be that you had to be public about it. Mm. Um, you weren't allowed to kind of crawl into yourself and go, I don't want people knowing, which is more what my sister did, and put on not so much a brave face, just a... I knew that she didn't want me to think the worst. So I remained completely ignorant about cancer and didn't look anything up. You know, even when she was in the hospice, I was like not realizing what a hospice was for, yeah. which mm. was good because I think when we just had a laugh and when she looked at me, she didn't see me upset or thinking what was going to happen to her, which helped, I think, helped both of us. Mm. She she's your she was your oldest sister. Yeah, yeah, she's five years older. Yeah, yeah. And and you two were at boarding school together, so you yes. have a very special. Yeah, so bond. that was a big bond. I mean, she went older to boarding school. She went when she was eleven, and she loved it. She absolutely thrived. But I got sent to eight, which is a very different age to go to boarding school. So she was very important to me. Sort of, I think I got to see her once a week, and that was very that was very important. And she was a big character at school. She was called Tom then. Everybody called her Tom. Not quite sure why, but it was always be like, "Oh, you're Tom's sister." Or Tom did this, and you would hear things like, "And Tom played T Rex at the assembly." She was always doing things that people thought was shocking. The nuns were like, "Oh, she's going to come to a bad end," her because she would argue with them about stuff, and she would march around like she had Chairman Mao's little red book. She was a communist, and she didn't believe in God, and you know, everyone's like, "Oh my God," because she was weirdly, you know, didn't care about in certain ways or in other ways she was be quite unconfident but um even if she was frightened of something she would just go ahead and do it because mm. that was the way she was and, and her being a writer I thought I can put her work into the book um so the summer so people can really sort of hear her voice which and one of the nicest things is that some people have said oh they've looked up her books on Amazon and bought some of her books now because mm. mm. they've gone oh I liked spending time with her would like to know more about her so that was be like the best gift I could give. That's the only thing I could do for her is that her work carries on. 
So did you sort of follow her through life then as your little sister? Were you were you always big sister, little sister? I'm fascinated by the, the two girls' relationship. Very much, very much big sister, little sister. So I sort of admired her, would kind of copy her. Um, and then I, when I started to do comedy and then also when I started to do writing comedy for other people, which she had done as well. So then there was a bit of a, oh, I didn't realise this, but, Annie didn't like the fact that I was now in her world. Oh. And I think it comes from a different, as the younger one, I didn't feel rivalry for her, but I think she definitely felt it the other way around, like, get away, what are you doing following me, you know? Um, So there was that, and so I would just try and, I suppose, play down whatever I was doing. But yeah, there is a funny dynamic. But at the same time, she was always big sister if I needed advice, although in many ways she was... She was, I was more practical and grown up <laughs> in certain things like financially or things like that. Like well, she was always borrowing money from me. And uh, when her tax bill, we were both self-employed, but I kind of quickly realized, oh, you get a tax bill every January, <laughs> put your money aside. But Annie, it was always a huge surprise. <laughs> oh, I've got this tax bill. I'm like, yeah, why don't you? And when I remember saying to her, well, just, I take a percentage and I put it aside each month because it's not your money. You know, you had to get rid of it. And she just stared at me like I'd said, you know what I do? I get the money and bury it with my own shit in the garden. <laughs> she was just like staring at me like you're insane. Who would do that? Like money was just to be spent. And she was very generous if she had money. But if she didn't have money, then me or my brother were to give her our money. <laughs> like, why wouldn't we share the money? You know, it was just a little detail money. Yeah. Was it a huge shock then, Jill, to find out she was ill? I didn't know what it meant when she emailed me and I was touring. And I remember the email and she, she said uh, they found a bit of cancer in my lung, but it's fine and I'm getting treatment. And I remember looking up lung cancer, not really understanding what it said about all the stages. And then she sent another email saying, don't look it up. And then I phoned her and she was all very, oh, it's going to be fine because I have this treatment um, and the chemo and all of that. So I didn't, uh, I didn't know what to think. So I didn't think much. I thought, don't think worse. And I said to my brother, and my brother did know that people, you know, had known people die of cancer. But he was very, oh, and I said, but it says people die. And he went, oh, well, don't be silly. Don't think about that. It was really only the last couple of weeks that I seriously thought. And even then, I didn't really comprehend. You know, she had a great capacity to seem well, even in the hospice. She would be chatting away. and It was only, I remember, moving her legs. And then she couldn't, I thought, oh, she can't move at all. The only thing she can move is her head and I noticed, so oh, that's why she orders scampi because she can pick it up with her hand because she can't move her other hand. And, uh, but yet she, her brain was there and she seemed well and sort of kind of fooled everybody. And it was only the last sort of, I would say the last four days that you realized she was fading. Because I remember saying to the doctor who came in, I said, oh, she's not eating. And she didn't have ice cream. She loves ice cream. And the doctor had to say to me, and I thought, God, how stupid. The doctor said, well, that's what happens. It's the body shutting down. Mm. And I thought they were, I didn't realize that they were helping her die. I thought they were keeping her alive. And that was when I was like, oh, I think I need to shift my mind this, how this is going to be. But it was just too, she was too larger than life 
too in my life to me to take it on board. I think it took me two years really to take on board mm. that she was not coming. She wasn't traveling because she traveled a lot. So there'd been a lot of times because she hadn't been around, you know, but to go, no, this, that should, she's not coming back. But also to know what that feeling is. My dad had died, but you expect that. But her going, I was like, you have to sort of recalibrate. Oh, they've gone. But of course, everything about them is still with you. So in that way, they're not gone. Her mm. influence is still in me. I still think of like everybody who loses someone, you still think of things you'd like to say to them. So it was sort of getting used to that, what that's like of losing someone and going, oh, but then you haven't lost them completely. They're still always in your life in a weird way. Yeah, that's what I feel about my my mum, I have to say. Yeah. But we, we, don't, we don't talk about the sibling relationship that much, do we? I mm. mean, obviously, as you say, we expect our parents to, to die before mm. us. Um, and also you might lose a partner, um, you know, which is obviously very difficult for people, but you might also meet another partner. You're not... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sibling, and it's a person who's been with you, especially as a younger child. Yeah, since the beginning. Yes. I mean, you had never yeah. known a life without her in it. Yeah, I think that was what was strange, and 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 it also made me think, who was I without her? You know, or who would I have been? Would am I this because of her, or would I have been like this anyway? I sort of thought maybe I would have been much more conventional. Mm -hmm. uh, if it hadn't been for her, me just trotting along behind mm -hmm. her going, oh, she knows best. Oh, actually, she doesn't. But I'll, I'm here now, <laughs> you know, so let's see what we can do with it. But also the thing about you can't have another one. That was a, a thing when her partner, Martin, who's lovely, and Annie said, I want Martin to meet somebody because she said he's a very, very good boyfriend. So he should be with somebody. And so when Martin started dating uh, again, and I was happy for him, but it was a a shock. It was a, oh, right. Because I can't have another sister. You know, I'm happy for him, but going, oh, this is how it's different in that, you know, there isn't an alternative for me. I won't meet a new sister. Mm -hmm. Although I suppose you might meet a new friend that is, you get closer to like that. Like her, her friends that are her age, they're not like a sister, but they're a bit more like that to me. I feel they've been quite motherly with me and helped me and i was just say i've got three sisters i'm the youngest and i can't even begin to think how life would be losing one mm. of them and you think you know there's an age gap my oldest sister Kay, i think there's 10 years between us so i didn't really know her when yeah. i was young because she had left for uni and so it was well on in life, I think, before we actually got to know each other. And then she moved away to America, so we don't see each other often. But we're still all very close, and we go you know, on holiday together once every um, three years or so. And um, you, I suppose you think, because she's the oldest, Kerry, and then there's Christine, and there's Shag, and then there's me, but it's not necessarily going to be in that order that no. we're going to fall off the earth, is it? I mean, it could be any one of us it could be but the, the point is I think I, I just assume that they're always going to be there and of course they're not and you make plans believing that they're going to be there yes and and so I, I yeah can't and we would talk about looking forward to being crazy old ladies you know, and what fun that would be to be like meet for tea and uh, judge people in cafes and you know be old ladies together 
uh, yeah, because you just assume that's it. And she, funnily enough, she was somebody who talked a lot about being an old lady, of being old and wanting to live a long time and be old. Um, and I thought, well, isn't that funny? Because I've never really particularly thought about that. Uh, but she did think about that and wanted to sort of live a long time and be a fabulous old lady. But then also she was very precocious. And I think I thought, is that a thing? How she was uh, very sort of keen to kind of leave school and get out there and meet boys and be interesting um, early because she didn't have so much time, you know, sort of subconsciously. Mm. And why she was maybe very like telling me <laughs> things like that. Um, I wasn't really her sister because her uh, David Cassidy was her real brother and we had been swapped and just sort of making up lies and nonsense to make life more exciting. Yeah. Mm. Well, how, how old was Annie when she, she died to? 57. Oh. Mm. And how old are you yeah. now? I'm 59. Mm. Soon to get my rail card. Can't yeah. wait for that discount. Yeah. Yeah. Um, People do talk about that thing about being older than the person you've lost and, yes. and whether that, you know, sticks with you. Does it stick with yeah, you? Yeah, it, it, weirdly, it really does. Those sort of old anniversaries matter. Like her birthday mattered to me, certainly the first couple of years, to meet with her friends and Martin, her partner, and we would do something to kind of celebrate her and go to where her ashes are and do stuff. And definitely being the age where she didn't get beyond was a big thing. And and I, but in a positive way, in that I do think of it like if something's annoying, I go, you can be dead. You know, you, you do, you, this is the bonus time. So you're lucky. And I think, and also you're off the age, you do start to lose people in your 50s. Uh, and, and other people who, especially in comedy, there's quite a lot of, you know, people not living the healthiest, healthiest of lives who have gone in their 50s. And you go, well, uh, uh, I'm lucky, lucky to be here. Yeah. Do you still see Martin and his? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're very close. Yeah, I see him a lot. And what's lovely, he's very close to my mum as well um, and goes to visit my mum, which is because his he had, his mum died at the same time that Annie was ill. Um, uh, yeah, and my dad died as well at that same time. So there was a lot of, like, the oldies were dying, but we were like, we can't even think about them because we're thinking about this, you know. Um, but yes, so he's, yeah, he's, he's like part of the family, you know, he feels like, uh, like a brother. Yeah. How is that accepting his, his partner? Oh, I'm absolutely fine with it. Yeah. It was just, it was a shock. And I knew that he didn't want to say anything to me, you know, about it. So, uh, I was the one who said to him, oh, now another mutual friend said, are you still seeing so-and-so? And then he started to talk about it and now he knows it's perfectly fine. And he's seeing a nice woman that we all approve of. Because that's the other thing. We're all judging his new partners of compared to Annie. And to go, well, would Annie like them? Well, we think she would like this one. Yes. Not the last one, but this one. Yeah. So poor Martin. <laughs> We're like in his life forever. That, that was one of the things that I really loved about the the, the book, Joe. And you've alluded to it earlier on. And uh, dancing my way around this. I mean, I think we do talk about cancer a lot more. And I think in most ways that is very positive but we tend to sort of now present sort of pen portrait ways of how people should be how people react to things and you know I love the honesty in your book because you know losing somebody to anything and cancer it's messy 
Yeah. It's, it's really messy. It's really shit. Yeah. You're not always thinking what you should be thinking and, and what, you know, the world is telling you is the way to approach it. And sometimes you want to howl at the fucking moon, you yeah. know. Um, and I, I, I got that. I got that from your book. Yeah. And the, uh, and the ugliness of it and the sort of yeah. relentlessness of it is hard. Uh, and I don't think people really talk about that, but how how just nasty cancer is and what it does to people. Um, and also the thing of what, 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 and funnily enough, now I know several people have reacted in this way, how when people are dying, they can lash out uh, in a very, like an animal would, because they're trying to protect themselves. So she was very protective. She didn't want anyone to say what was happening. That was for her to do. Um, and we were all very careful to, do that and but then you know somebody would come in the room and not know the rules of how to behave and and kind of go oh i'm so sorry about this and we were like oh don't say you know because it would really upset her um and the, it's so you know, i was like you could see how tiring ca having cancer is that i think all your energy goes into being well mentally and physically trying to get through each day to you know be able to enjoy each day and that was i think quite a good thing that she did, particularly in the hospice, to just do the things that she'd like to do with Martin, like watch crap television and just have a laugh about things and be very, very focused, you know, blinkers on, you can just cope with this, you know, or a mm. nice ice cream or, or something like that. So you said earlier that you at times thought, oh, if only I said this, if only I hadn't, if I yeah. had said, oh, you're a bit, I mean, do you still do that to yourself or are you kind of past that? I think it's just, I think it's there forever in my head as a thought of like, why, why didn't I say that? Because I remember seeing her, this would have, you know, I was trying to think then I thought, God, it could have been a year before that I met, we met one time and I thought, God, she's got really thin. Uh, and I thought at the time too thin, but I also didn't know that that weight loss was a sign, a big mm. sign that something's wrong. You know? Uh now I would know and say to somebody, I think, you know. Mm. But, yeah, you can't help but think, of, you know, what would have happened and then she would have got an earlier diagnosis. She thought it was back pain because she thought it was from sitting at her computer. She was treated for back pain, but, of course, it was actually a tumour. It was a shoulder pain, but it was a tumour. Mm. So the doctors didn't do any cancer tests for a long time. Mm. So that feels very unfair. You worry about it for you? I don't, I don't worry about it because I think – I. It wouldn't be much point worrying about it. I would be, you know, have things checked. Um, and I did. <laughs> I did insist on having um, uh, a lung x-ray. I remember going to the doctor shortly after and him saying to me, but it's not, uh, it's not that sort of cancer, lung cancer. It's not hereditary. There won't be any reason why you. And I burst into tears and he went, okay, I'll make you an appointment. <laughs> so that I went to have a lung x-ray just to kind of calm me down, I think. Um, but I don't think it's a, it's just a very, that's a very sort of pointless negative thing to kind of think, oh, well, it could be me. Cause then you'll spend your life thinking, oh, it could be me, you know, yeah. yeah, it's better to go on in beautiful ignorance. Yeah. And were you doing your comedy all the way through this? Yes. And weirdly, um, totally doable, uh, because it's that thing of going on stage, the real world's not there. And in many ways, I thought, oh, I'm lucky 
because also you get the adrenaline when you're on stage that perks you up, endorphins and all of that. So it was only sort of when I stopped the tour, funnily enough, that's when I started going running because I thought, well, I need to do something to get this feeling. And that Mm. physical exercise for me really helped to make me feel better, definitely. But actually the being on stage was absolutely fine. It wasn't like, and weirdly made me completely fearless on stage because I thought, well, the worst things happened. You know, what, you're going to heckle me. You know, that's nothing. So... Mm. It was, it was funny. It was a comic said, oh, you've changed. And I didn't say. And I thought, oh, yeah, I have changed. Yeah, I'm not the same person now. Yeah. Hmm. How do you think it has changed you? I think you're in – what's lovely, which I didn't realise, I mean, it's not lovely, but you're in a club with other people who – you're in the grief club as soon as you lose people, uh, who, other people who know how it feels – uh, and I found that this Edinburgh Festival, when people, if they were buying the book afterwards, lots of people told me who they'd lost, particularly if it was siblings. But there was a lot of people who lost parents. And and it was really nice. And sometimes people would sort of have a bit of a cry, which I was thinking, well, this is the opposite of my job. <laughs> They've come to a comedy show and now I've made them cry. But if you're in the grief club, you know that that's part of how it is to love that person that's gone, isn't it? That you go, I feel sad because I'm thinking about them, but I feel good that I'm thinking about them as well. So I think that was lovely to know that this is the whole community of people. And then working to raise money for Macmillan, that's a whole other community of people that are there who are lovely and will help you. So in that way, I've I've sort of changed in the attitude to people and also I think at first, I think I was sort of nicer, kinder, and then quite quickly I go, too irritable, too no, irritated you- by everything again, you know. It's, but it's- I think I had a few months of going, oh, isn't the world just wonderful? But now I'm like, my God, if that man doesn't stop eating crisps on this train, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so back to that as well. But you do have that sense of you're you're lucky to be alive and to try to enjoy your life more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just people the, more, isn't it? Enjoy yeah. the people you like more and the people you don't, maybe don't bother with. Oh, I absolutely agree don't with you. Yeah. I've ditched so many people in the last <laughs> two or three years. Hardly <laughs> anyone left. I'm just going back to work to actually meet people now. <laughs> I'll take that as my warning. Yes. Um, <laughs> We just need to play Big Six or Bingo, but while Karen is uh, getting up her little uh, sheet of questions there, let Ooh. me just remind people that the, the book is called uh, The the Funny Thing About Death. And uh, I, th- I think at least a portion of uh, proceeds are going to Macmillan. Is that right, Joe? All, all the money is going to Macmillan, yeah. All all of the money by the, by the book yeah. is, is uh, going to Macmillan. Yeah, because I felt I couldn't profit uh from it so yeah and also because i wrote a lot of it in lockdown i enjoyed writing it wasn't like i stopped working in order to write it so yeah yeah uh, well i mean i'll say it again i thoroughly recommend it i really really uh, got, got a lot from it you. um right over okay, to you Ju, over to you give us um right. a couple of numbers between one and 60 uh 17 17 are you planning to downsize oh well, it's difficult because when we got this place, I thought we had a lot of room, but you just spread, don't you? I mean, there's only two of us in here, but I already think I'd like another room. Uh, but I might uh, 
my husband would like to live somewhere with a view, a flat, basically. He always wants to live in a flat, not a house. So we might go have a flat, then I won't have a garden, but if I have some outside space and if we can see the sea, could do, you know do what? that. I think I've got another you, move in me, yeah. Yeah, you could get a camper van, then you'd get the sea. Never. <laughs> Off that fence. <laughs> right, another number. <laughs> uh, 23. 23. Optimist or pessimist? Oh, now I've got a way round it to me. I always think everything is going to be awful and I'm going to hate it. Like if we're going around to somebody's for dinner or to a party, I go, oh God, I don't want to go to this thing. I really don't. And then I enjoy it. So I always make myself think something's going to be terrible and then I'm pleasantly surprised. Yes. It's just like sex, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you remember. <gasps> yeah, I don't want to have to go through that messy stuff. <laughs> yeah, so so I don't know. Because I think it's foolish to go into thinking you're going to love everything and then get a terrible surprise and go, oh, well, that, well I was thought I was going to enjoy it. Much better to go, oh, actually, that wasn't terrible. I think we were separated at birth too. I really do. <laughs> this is uncanny stuff. Funny, isn't it? Well, anyway, um, yeah. this this one's got to to I go up to Wales in a camper van. Stephen is downstairs, yeah. champing at the bit as we speak, with a yeah. giant courgette <laughs> somewhere about Listen, his person. <laughs> my meals are made in advance because then I know what I'm getting to. Eat. I like my food. I mean, I hate really to be disappointed. Joe, really. I mean, what am I going to do with her? She's got him down there in the camper van. He's revving it up um, as we speak. It's like (laughs) Scooby-Doo. And they've got, wait a minute, I've got the menu. I've got the menu, Joe. Courgette and tomato loaf with tomato chutney. Gorgeous. Ottolenghi. Uh-huh. Courgette, mm. mozzarella and tomato sauce bake. Uh, courgette and f- feta fritters. Um, yeah, that's it. So we've got this all prepared. Rachel Roddy's the courgette and mozzarella. And then the courgette and feta fritters. I think that's in Nigel Slater. So you know what? I'm absolutely, I don't eat shit. I'm happy. And I think you're just envious. Okay, fair enough. Okay, <laughs> yeah. All right. No, yeah. Cut, cut, cut now. Oh, Thank you, Joe. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank really you. That nice. was such a blast. Next week on the How To Be 60 podcast, we are joined by Dr. Hilary Jones. Am I allowed to say dishy Dr. Hilary? Oh, well, I just have, haven't I?